Now, Nadir, first off, Saudi Arabia agreeing uh, to plans to move away from oil profits. What are they looking at there? Yeah, you know, Sakina, I mean, we've got to put this into context. So sort of over the last 18 months to two years, we've seen the oil price plunge from above $100 a barrel. Um, and at one point, it trapped under $30 a barrel. And we've seen a bit of a recovery since that point. Now, um, you know, we know that about 95% of government revenues in Saudi Arabia comes from uh, the sale of oil. So the economy and the, the government spending is highly, highly dependent, um, you know, on oil revenues and where the oil price is. And obviously, uh, because we're in an era where we went through exceptionally high oil prices. It obviously uh, resulted in a lot of sort of uh, undisciplined spending and undisciplined behavior within the Saudi Arabian economy. And in fact, uh, you know, we saw them declaring a, a number of wars. We saw a number of, uh, we saw a number of excesses um, in the Saudi Arabian economy. Um, you know, and, 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 and it, it, it ultimately resulted in, uh, you know, the economy requiring a very high oil price in order to balance the budget. So, you know, we're talking about just a mere six to eight months ago, uh, Saudi Arabia required around about a $95 barrel oil price just to balance their budget. Now, we know that the oil price was considerably below that, um, and Saudi Arabia was burning through reserves and burning through sovereign wealth assets at a very, very rapid rate. And, in fact, uh, the deputy crown prince, which, uh, who gave an interview to Bloomberg, mentioned uh, at one point last year, um, you know, they were, they, was, they were under severe duress and there were real concerns that the country was essentially going to go bankrupt if they continued spending um, at the rate they were, they were and if the oil price remained at the price that it was. And, uh, you know, they've now started this $2 trillion uh, sovereign wealth fund, um, which in fact is going to be the third largest fund in the world. You know, if you look at BlackRock, they have about $4.5 trillion um, in assets under management. And second to that is going to be the Saudi Arabian uh, sovereign wealth fund, which is going to have $2 trillion. I mean, to put that into context, um, you know, they could buy the world's four largest companies, which would be uh, Apple, Microsoft, Berkshire, Hathaway, and ExxonMobil, and still have $100 billion left over. So it is a massive sovereign wealth fund. And, uh, you know, they're planning, to do, they're planning to raise the fund for the sovereign wealth fund, uh, you know, through floating a portion of the state-owned oil company, Saudi Aramco, which uh, is a company said to have about uh, 10 times the reserves of ExxonMobil, which puts it at a market cap of of about $2 trillion, which will then be, uh, you know, by far the world's largest company, but they'll float 5% of that company, um, you know, and then consolidate a number of their other sovereign wealth assets. And the whole point of this $2 trillion fund is to develop industry in Saudi Arabia, to develop uh, small and medium enterprises, to develop their housing markets, and really to win the economy off oil so that, uh, you know, they don't have future crises like this again. What does this mean uh, for the global investment community. Well, for the time being, Saudi Arabia has uh, pledged to keep output at maximum to try and squeeze out the high-cost producers. We know that there's no, reach, uh, no deal reached in Doha with regards to freezing of output, and it's really Saudi Arabia that torpedoed that deal because we know about the tensions with Iran, and they mentioned that they'll only freeze output if Iran follows suit, and that, and that uh, didn't seem to be happening. So, you know, Saudi Arabia determined to keep the oil price low in order to keep, uh, you know, Iranian government revenue 
revenues under pressure in order to keep uh, to squeeze out the high cost shale producers, be it in the US or anywhere else in the world. Um, you know, and, and, and on the back of that, you know, we, we are seeing a marginally improving uh, 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 Brent crude oil price. I mean, we're trading at just under $45 a barrel, um, and that's up from under $30 a barrel, as mentioned earlier. But really speaking, the demand and supply equilibrium hasn't really changed over the last couple of months. So, um, you know, until we have a mop-up for the excess supply in the market or we have someone cutting production, um, you know, there is a ceiling to how high oil prices can go. So interesting times in the world's largest oil producer. Certainly is. And then uh, markets eyeing the U.S. Federal Reserve's rate announcement tomorrow. What could we expect, Nadir? Yeah, it's a big one, isn't it, Sakina? I mean, I think the consensus is that the Federal Reserve is not going to move at this meeting. Um, you know, obviously, unwinding of a, a protracted period of very, very accommodative monetary policy will have severe effects not only for the U.S., but also for the global economy. I mean, if we see uh, how the accommodative monetary policy in the U.S. has facilitated the flow of global capital, you know, beat into emerging markets, beat into high-risk assets like junk bonds, um, you know, it has been pretty severe in the global search for yield. So the unwinding of this policy will obviously have drastic impacts for, one, the U.S. financial markets, but two, also global financial markets. So, you know, and we see it happening every time there's talk about the Federal Reserve tightening their monetary policy and going on an interest rate increase. We see the dollar strengthening quite drastically. We see emerging market currencies sell off. We see risk assets globally, uh, particularly emerging market equities sell off. We we see emerging market bonds bond sell-off like our own bond market, and that's really because the capital which came into all these uh, markets in search for better returns and higher yields flights back to the U.S. in anticipation of better yields there. So, um, you know, it is really a market-moving decision. What we've seen coming out of the U.S. more recently is that the data has been lackluster. Um, you know, we have seen very poor inflation numbers, well below 1%. Uh, we're starting to see, we continue to see, should I say, the labor market improving with the unemployment rates becoming entrenched under 5%. We see that participation rates improving in terms of the labor market, meaning that uh, the number of people who are able to to seek a job or actively seeking a job, that participation rate is improving. Um, you know, but more recently, we've seen the dollar weakening, um, you know, and we've seen the Federal Reserve become a lot more dovish than what they were sort of towards the back end of 2015. And on the back of that, we've seen risk assets rally, like our bond market, like our currency, um, and we've seen the dollar weakening. But, uh, you know, at the moment, at the end of the day, commodity prices have rallied. That's going to feed through into a high inflation in the U.S., the weaker dollar is going to make a, is going to see a recovery in, in, in U.S. manufacturing in the months and quarters to come. Um, you know, and you see an improved profitability from U.S. corporates. We see corporate earnings season uh, coming out at the moment for the first quarter, and it's really been a mixed bag. But a weaker dollar is definitively positive for U.S. corporates. And uh, you know, as we see quarter two earnings, etc., coming through, we should see that recovery. So, based on all of this, you know, there may not be an interest rate increase at, the, at, at, at tomorrow's meeting, or there probably won't. But, uh, you know, the market shouldn't discount the probability and the likelihood of an uh, interest rate hike at the next meeting and possibly even two interest rate hikes this year. Um, you know, and given our markets are currently positioned, they're sort of forecasting a very dovish policy from the Fed for an extended period of time, with, which with the uh, more recent data coming out um, in the future, you know, that, that, that may not necessarily be the case. Thank you so much, Nadia Token, analyst at 274 Investment Managers. You're listening to AM Live.